Okay, welcome. We're on uh, Eternal Rewards number seven, and uh, we're just going to continue with the series. And we're looking tonight at three different rewards, eternal rewards. Uh, and the rewards we're going to look at tonight uh, are going to cover the issue of honor, uh, treasure in heaven, and vindication. So we're going to look at three areas of different rewards. So we're going to go back again and just uh, pick up the whole area of uh, introdu uh, by introducing it again. So we saw in Matthew 16, verse 27, uh, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will reward each according to his works. So constantly Jesus taught about eternal rewards. He taught it directly through parables, the reality of eternal rewards. And then he also taught about the need to prepare for a coming kingdom. And so when you look at Jesus' ministry, he talked about the kingdom now coming within us. And then a kingdom coming, which would be a manifestation of his second coming into the earth. And he taught that within this uh, whole realm of the kingdom, we enter the kingdom by faith. We receive Jesus Christ, our Savior. The Spirit of God becomes joined to us. We become a new creation. And then we must grow and mature and develop so that the character of Christ is formed in us. And uh, we want to look then, we looked at the different rewards there were three main categories of the rewards, and I shared how in the Bible, especially the book of Revelation, there's a whole list of different kind of rewards. Maybe sometime I'll go through those one by one, but um, you can actually summarize them or bring them all together into three principal categories. And these three categories relate very closely to God's design for us as sons, his eternal purpose for us as sons. So the three the categories we could put all the rewards, I think you'll find if you look at them closely, you can put each each of the rewards into one of these three categories. One eternal intimacy, eternal intimacy, which means rewards that signify a much greater intimacy, connection, and experiential knowledge of God. So clearly there are realms of intimacy in the coming kingdom, just as Jesus had realms of intimacy with his disciples on the earth. The second reward we we talked about was eternal authority, rewards that signify um, a, a greater level of partnership, a greater level of responsibility, and a much increased level of authority uh, in, in partnering with Jesus to establish his kingdom. So when you go through the Bible and then look through the various ages in the Old Testament through to the New, you see manifestations of that sonship authority where whole, like even you take, for example, uh, uh, Moses going into Egypt and uh, the, even there he was able to upheave a whole nation and bring about the change and deliverance of, uh, of his own people by demonstrating or bringing the power of God to bear in that situation. And then the third uh, major category is eternal glory. These are rewards uh, uh, which signify special honor and special distinction that God puts on us in acknowledging or placing honor on us for how we've followed him and served him in our journey through life here. And so uh, those three categories, those three areas of rewards, eternal intimacy, eternal authority, eternal glory, each of those things are eternal in that once the decision's been made, what you qualify for, it's irreversible. And uh, that goes on not just for the kingdom age, it goes on into eternity. We have privileged access, privileged roles, and privileged honor. And it's just, this is the justice of God. Makes sense that God's justice would show this way that someone who lives a casual, non-committed life, uh, compromised life, would definitely in eternity living in a different realm and a different degree of eternal life 
than someone who sacrificially given, sacrificially served, and have lived their life to bring honor to Jesus, allowed the Lord to change their heart and their motivation so the character of Christ formed. Just makes sense. So uh, I want to, just before um, I go on into those three rewards, I want to just touch on an area which I will label or call sonship design. And what you'll see is if you have a look at how we design for sonship, the three dimensions of reward correspond exactly to the three dimensions we are to pursue in the way God has designed us to be sons. We saw that God's eternal purpose is to have a family of sons and the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So Jesus will have the preeminence and those sons who are overcoming sons will partner with him in changing the whole world. So, so in John chapter 17 and verse 3, 4 and 6, John 17, verse 3, 4 and 6, um, Jesus has a lot of things to say in this prayer. It's called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And uh, so, but in each of these three verses, he identifies one sonship um, uh, aspect of, of sonship design. So here it is, John 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Secondly, uh, John 17, verse 4. I've glorified you on earth. I have finished the work you gave me to do. And the, John 17, verse 6. I've manifested your name to the men you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and I've kept your word. So notice three things. Eternal life means that an intimate relationship. This is eternal life that they know you. The word know there is a word of intimacy with the Father and intimacy with Jesus who accurately represents him. So intimacy with God, intimacy uh, in our spirit means an impartation of his life to us that changes us. So you don't get changed by information. You don't even get changed by reading the word of God. It's a, it's a pathway to encountering the true word of God. Jesus said, you search in the Bible and you think in these you have life, but they speak of me and you won't come to me. So eternal life is an impartation that comes into our lives that transforms us by a relationship with Jesus Christ and a relationship with God the Father. So you, you see this even in, in the garden where Adam was given a choice. He could eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He could eat from the tree of life. And in Revelation tells us that tree of life was Jesus. So I'm suspecting that the tree of life was not an attractive looking plant, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a fascinating looking tree. And so he had to choose between uh, eating of one tree or the other. If he ate the tree of life, then the life of God would be imparted to him and he would grow and mature and come into his full inheritance. But as you know, he chose something else. So you notice then three things. And number one, intimacy. This is eternal life that they know you. And uh, as we develop intimacy with God, where lives are transformed and changed, and we are preparing ourselves for a much greater level of intimacy when we see him as he is. Secondly, assignment, John 17, 4, I've glorified you on earth. I finished the work you gave me to do. So a son literally means to be a builder of the father's house, to extend the father's kingdom. So every son has an assignment to do, uh, and that is to bring honor to God our father, and in our assignment, whatever it is, whether it's as a housewife, whether it's as a mother, whether it's serving in some small capacity or whatever dimension our area of territory is, that is where we develop our faithfulness as a son. It's where we develop the character of serving. It's where we grow in our ability to love people in the face of disappointments. So 
whatever our assignment is now, it is a temporary assignment that prepares us for a much greater eternal assignment. And so we saw in the rewards promised in eternity, much greater intimacy and much greater authority and, uh, and so on. And uh, so uh, each of us in our assignment is called one to bring honor to our father. In other words, that the way we do it represents his character and nature. We're not exploiting people or hurting people. Uh, secondly, that we develop faithfulness. We can be relied upon as consistency, integrity in what we do. And then thirdly, this fruitfulness. We actually produce something. And so this is an important part of our role as a son. And uh, thirdly, transformation. He said, I manifested your name to the men you've given me out of the world. To manifest your name means to actually represent what the Father is like, to show his nature, his kindness, his love, his compassion, his uh, long-suffering, his joy, all of those things. So for us to accurately represent what the Father is like, we need now to embrace a lifelong journey of being transformed. And that's where inner healing comes, it's where deliverance comes, it's where we grow our heart qualities, kingdom heart qualities. So all of those interlock with one another. Each one helps support the other. And so it's, it's not surprising that the three categories of reward are all interlocked the same way as our designers. Okay, so let's have a look then and go into the three areas of reward. We'll look at now a reward number six, and uh, that's praise and honor, praise and honor. So one aspect of eternal reward is eternal glory, and there's many aspects of it. One of them is praise and honor from God himself. So let's go through and, and I'll show you a few things about that. Firstly, we're created for honor. We're created for great honor. Here's, here's a couple of scriptures in Psalm 104 verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honor and majesty. How about that? God is clothed with honor and majesty. In uh, Psalm 93 verse 1, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. In other words, that's kingly honor, kingly glory. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. So we are made in the image of that person. We're made in the image of God. We are made to carry glory. So when Adam and Eve were designed and when they first created, they carried a dimension of glory. The presence of God surrounded them. They were, they were majestic people in the earth. There was no one in God's creation like that. And so we're created to represent God and God is full of majesty and honor. So we're created to carry the honor, to carry the glory of God, to carry his life, his nature, his immense power and majesty. We're meant to carry that and, and represent him in the earth. But of course, through the fall, the glory has left and this created the situation we find ourselves in, naked, ashamed, and uh, clothed with dishonor. And, uh, and we are struggling, of course, to try and find honor for ourselves. So here's another scripture, Psalm 8, verse 4 through to 6. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, or a little lower than Elohim, than God himself. You have crowned him with glory and honor and made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You put all things under his feet. So notice that word crown there means to put on a royal headdress of sovereignty. So when God created man, he created us for sovereignty in the earth. We're created to have dominion over the earth and we're created in order to make the work productive and fruitful and, and so on. He said, notice he crowned him with glory and honor. Where glory it means the shining nature of God. The word honor means splendor and majesty and magnificence, sovereign power, dignity. So notice how we've been designed or how God created us. We've been crowned. In other words, put, 
God has put upon us the evidence of majesty and kingly glory as his sons and representatives of a royal king with the shining nature of God and all honor and splendor. So we cannot comprehend what we were like before the fall. It's like it just it can't easily be understood the majesty and magnificence of Adam and how jealous the devil was of him and desiring to steal from him what he had because it was what the devil wanted. Secondly, we see then, so we see first of all, we're designed or created for great honor, great glory. God has not changed his plan. He still plans to put upon us and bestow upon us great honor and great glory. So right now that glory comes within us and Christ within us, the hope of a greater measure of, of, uh, of majesty and glory to come. So secondly, then the believe, believers will receive different realms of praise and honor in the kingdom. Believers will receive different realms of praise and honor in the kingdom. So uh, here, there's many scriptures on that. Let me just give you some on it. Here's one. In 1 Samuel 2 verse 30, the Lord of Israel says, uh, he's speaking to Eli, uh, that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now be it far from me, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me will be lightly valued. So God makes it very clear that if we honor him in our life, then he will put honor upon us. And so uh, we see this in Matthew 25, 21. The Lord said to the servant, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter the joy of your Lord. So notice then the faithful servant receives praise, receives approval, and receives a reward. Ruler over many things. And uh, so God looks on um, not on our outward actions. He looks on the motivations of our actions. So in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, it also tells us about honor. It says, therefore, judge nothing before the time till the Lord comes. He will bring to light the hidden things of darkness. In other words, everything that's covered now. When the Lord comes, there will be an exposure of them. And he will reveal the counsels or the motivations of the heart. And then everyone's praise will come from God. So that word praise means to commend or to approve a person. So notice where it's saying, you can't tell really with people what they're like. Uh, you can't see into the motivations of their heart. So he says, don't judge things before the time. You can't even really see for your own life very clearly. And he says, so judge nothing before the time till the Lord comes. So notice the, the point here, when the Lord comes, then he will bring out into the light everything that was hidden. And he'll also expose what motivated people to do what they did. And then they're either rewarded or praised or commended and honored, or they are dishonored or their, their shame is manifest. So the Bible is very clear. Some will receive great honor. Some will receive great honor in the kingdom. Here's an example of what that might look like. Um, and uh, again, Old Testament uh, gives you examples so you can get a glimpse of what eternal realities are like. But I want you to see just in the scripture here how if God wants to honor you, he is able to lift you up He's able to put amazing honor upon your life. We read this about Solomon. Solomon received great honor from the Lord. So 1 Chronicles 29, 25. So the Lord exalted Solomon exceedingly in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him such royal majesty as had not been seen on any king before him in Israel. That's an amazing scripture. So notice now that God exalts or lifts him up promotes him always before promotion comes humility so a massive requirement in our lives is we develop a, hum, a humble heart 
Jesus had a humble and a meek heart. Uh, Those who humble themselves, God will lift them up. Solomon humbled himself in his early days. And you can tell that by what he asked God for, which was from a wise and understanding heart. And so it says, God bestowed on him such royal majesty as hadn't been seen on any king before him in Israel. And if you want to follow that story through, you find the Queen of Sheba had heard about him and she came to see him. And it says that she looked at and look at all the things she looked at. She looked at his majesty. She looked at the way they came up and, and came into the, uh, in, into the house. They looked at the servants and how they were dressed and every aspect of Solomon's kingdom. And it said it took her breath away. And she said, I've heard so much of it, but it's just far greater than anything I could have imagined. So there's a wonderful story. I encourage you to read it and go look at the story of Solomon there. When the king uh, Solomon was at his height and his glory, then all kinds of things came to him. People came from all over the world. They came to him because what God had given him. So we see there in history an example of one man that God was able to lift up, raise up, and cause all the kings of the earth to come and seek his wisdom. How about that? If he did it once, he can do it again. So by far the greatest honor, though, are eternal. So Solomon's honor and majesty lasted temporarily because it was of an earthly nature. But the greatest honors are eternal. They're reserved for the millennium, and they're reserved for the ages that go beyond. So when God is talking about eternal, he's looking at, the word means literally age-lasting. So there are age upon age upon age, and there's reserved for the coming millennial kingdom and the ages beyond. God has reserved honor for people who quietly serve him that no one knows. Here's, here's something. In the kingdom or the coming kingdom, there is mo- there's small and there's great and there's least and there's greatest. So notice there, small, least, least, small, great, greatest. Now that's all talking about ranks of honor. In other words, there's massive different levels of honor in the coming kingdom. Uh, you, you read these scriptures here, for example, Matthew 5.19. And notice then that the uh, two things that come out in each of these scriptures, one, the level of ranking in the kingdom, and two, a behavior that characterized or led to that person having that rank. Look at this. Whoever breaks one of the least commandments and teaches men to do so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does and teaches them, so in other words, you, if you keep the word of God or you, you take his, uh, his uh, teachings, especially from the Sermon on the Mount, and you, te- you do them and teach them, you'll be called great in the kingdom. So they are least and great. And he's talking about the coming kingdom. Here's another one in Matthew 23, 11. He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. So if you want to be great, become a servant. If you want to be greatest, then you learn to serve more people. Here's another one in Revelations 19, 5. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you whose servants and those who fear him. And here it is, both small and great. So notice in the coming kingdom and even in, 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 in around the throne, the angels are saying, and they're identifying that there are both small and great. So you choose, whether you be small, whether you be great. No one makes that choice for you. It's dependent on how you walk with God in this life. Here's another one. Uh, Revelations 3.21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So notice there, a tremendous honor to sit with Jesus upon his throne. When the Bible also talks, there are people around the throne. So which do you want to be? A person around the throne worshiping? A person in the throne with Jesus, consulting with him about the advancement of his kingdom. Ah, big difference. 
So these are just some scriptures, but they all point to in the coming kingdom that there are levels of honor, levels of status, levels of recognition by God of the character and service you've given while you're on the earth. Okay, here's another one. Uh, Jesus himself received great honor. Jesus himself received great honor. Here it is here. He was on it on earth by his father. Here's a, here's a scripture in John, uh, sorry, Luke 3, 22 to 24. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved son. In you I'm well pleased. So notice what's happened. Heaven has opened up and God himself has spoken and, and declared his pleasure, his honor, his value of his son. So Jesus received honor from his father in front of everyone. So that's one example of Jesus being honored. Jesus was also honored before his disciples. So Jesus was honored in front of the crowd. Jesus was honored in front of his disciples. And uh, here it is, and it's found in Luke 9, verse 34 to 35. While Jesus was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. So Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration as he's prayed. He's transformed and changed. Now notice now that Father now gives him immense glory and immense honor. He radiates the glory of God. He radiates the life of God. And, and so only the three disciples saw that. So uh, this is how they said it in 2 Peter 1, 16 and 18. We did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here it is. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it personally, his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When did that happen? When a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him in the holy mount. So notice there that he's saying, we saw great honor, great majesty. We saw Jesus honored by his father in front of us. So quite interesting there. You see Jesus is honored in front of the crowds. He's honored in front of his disciples. And then the Bible tells us he will return with exceeding great honor and majesty. Uh, and we find that in Philippians 2 verse 8 through to 11. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him given him a name above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. So notice there, again it tells us that Jesus is highly exalted when he returns, he will return with glory. So we've seen now examples, we saw the example of Solomon being elevated by God, given exceeding great honor before men, we see Jesus being honored before men. We see him being honored in front of his disciples. And we see that this honor comes from God himself. And so uh, Jesus has received great honor now. Jesus also promised honor to us. And so uh, here's, a pro here's, here's in uh, Luke chapter 22 through uh, 28 to 30. Here's what Jesus promised. He said, he's talking to his disciples. He promised them honor in the coming kingdom. You are those who continue with me in my trials. I bestow or I gift to you a kingdom just as my father has bestowed upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What an amazing promise that Jesus has made now to his disciples 
who've given their lives now following him, given up their careers, who've given everything to serve him and to follow him. And he says, in the coming kingdom, just like my father has put upon me, I'm going to allow you to eat at my table. So it's one thing to eat at the, uh, the bridegroom's table. It's another to eat at the guest's table. So he said, I'll grant you to eat at my table and also to sit on thrones with me and you'll be judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So he, played, he promised then, notice, intimacy at my table, eating with me. That's a sign of intimacy and of honor. And uh, I'll bestow on you a kingdom and of authority. You will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So notice there, he's made that promise. But he's also made promise now to every believer that follows him. So you see this pattern there. And we'll come to it a bit more in a moment. But you see a pattern there how Jesus was honored. Solomon was honored. Jesus was honored by the Father. He's honored in front of his disciples. He's honored when he comes again. And now he's talking about honor to us. Here's the promise. And John 12 verse 26. If anyone. So this is open to all. It's not something that God determines. It's something that you determine by your response to him. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him will my father honor. Anyone. So this is for anyone. This is an open invitation to any person. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. So you notice there, if anyone, that's to everyone. If anyone serve me, in other words, or they do acts of service to Jesus or as his representative. So if any man serves the Lord, notice here he says, let him follow me. Now, it seems kind of like a weird combination that you've got uh, him saying, if any, man, if any man serve me, now let him follow me. You would have thought, or well, those who follow me should serve me. But he's not saying that. He's saying if you serve me, I mean, you already have made a decision to connect with him, build relationship with him. When he says to follow me, this is what he means. This is not evident when you first look at it. To follow a rabbi meant to accompany him and then copy his teaching and his lifestyle and become like him and do the same things he did and teach the same things he taught. So to follow Jesus means to allow his words to shape our life and character so we become like him. So you notice in the, in the book of Acts where they said of the disciples, they perceived their ignorant, untrained men, but they realized they'd been with Jesus. They had received an impartation of his way of thinking, his character and his lifestyle. So if we're going to serve the Lord, we must also commit to walking with him and letting him bring transformation to our life and heart. So it's not enough just to serve him. We must embrace the promise of, the, uh, of being transformed. And notice the two rewards that he makes there. He said, you'll be with me where I am. What does that mean? They're already with him. And he says, with me where I am. What are you talking about here? What he's meaning is this. When he says where I am, he's referring to a place of intimacy with, with his father. In John 1.18, it says, No man has ever seen the father but the son who is in the bosom of the father, intimate relationship with the father, and he has made him known. So what he's saying is, I'm living in a deep, intimate, personal relationship with my father. And that love that I walk in, that unity I walk in with him, that's what you're going to have. You're going to have that same dimension of love. He even referred to it later on in, in his priestly prayer in John 17, where he says, the same love that's in me will be in them. So notice the key there is that we've got to follow him, serve him and follow him. So uh, same place of relational intimacy. And then the second thing he says, him will my father honor. In other words, God, he promises that if we serve, 
And in our serving the Lord, we let him transform our heart and character. He promises then deep intimacy with the Father, and he also promises then that our Father will honor us. What does that mean? It means God the Father will compensate us for all the suffering, all the loss, all the hardship, all the difficulties we've walked through in serving Jesus. It says that God sees every part of that, and he will recognize that we've lived a life seeking to honor Jesus. And in return, he will confer on us great honor, far more than anything we've ever suffered or lost. So when you look around the world, and even in your own experience, you will realize that following Jesus has got a price. People misunderstand you. People reject you. People can be very hostile. And sometimes we suffer quite deep hardship. We walk through spiritual warfare and trials and difficulties. It's a, there are some real deep challenges in following Jesus. And Jesus said, if they, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute those who follow me because the servant's not greater than the master. So if we fully follow Jesus Christ, there are hardships come, there are difficulties come. And what he's saying in this scripture, that if you walk through that and let the, the process of all of that pain and difficulty go through transform you, he said, my father will honor you. He sees it all and he's planning to honor you so greatly that the troubles will seem so little. You imagine, for example, just thinking about a, a, an Olympic runner and they've spent three years training up every day, training hard, discipline, and then finding that final moment on the dice and they get the gold medal. They forget all the training. It was all about that moment of honor. So if they do that for just something so temporary, how much more should we do this for the eternal? So uh, um, here's, an, here's another scripture like that in, uh, in 1 Peter 1 verse 6 to 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you're grieved by various trials. So he's talking, so this is talking about a difficult life following Jesus. So that the genuineness of your faith be more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So notice what he's saying then is, yes, for the moment, it may well be we're in grief and we have trials, but those trials are proving and developing our faith. And this is precious to God. And it says, when the time comes for his coming, then there will be honor and glory and praise. He will publicly acknowledge us. So we have to choose then between the honor of God and the honor of men. And that's a challenge for every person. Some cultures are very centered around honor. And so the culture of Jesus' day was a culture of honor and shame. And so that meant honor was the main commodity to be desired. And it still is in the Middle East to today. About 70% of all cultures in the world are driven by the pursuit of honor and the fear of losing face or being shamed. So these are the cultures of Asia, Pacific, uh, Africa, and uh, uh, Hispanic, so many cultures in the world. And so honor was the level of approval the community put on you. It was something people either honored you or they shamed you. And so the honor that was given to you depended on your family of origin, where you came from. It depended on your courage in the battle, whether you fought or whether you ran, showed cowardice. Uh, it's on your generosity to the poor and on your position or rank. So they were very, very conscious of position, ranks, titles, and particularly your family of origin and your wealth status. So the whole culture system of Jesus' day, social and religious and political, always built around status and honor and positions and ranks. And that's what people sought, as they still do today. Now, 
Here's the thing about that. You find many cultures, that's exactly how they operate. And they put, they shame anyone who won't comply or flow and agree and come under that system. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus totally rejected the honor system of his culture. Notice the scripture here, John 5 verse 41. I do not receive honor from men. Now to receive means to claim it for yourself. So Jesus put no expectation on people honoring him. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. He sought only to please his father. Here's a couple of other scriptures. In John 6, 15, when Jesus perceived they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. Notice there, he sees the crowd. They want to make him king. They want to bring him to a place of honor and position. He takes off. You find frequently in the Bible when Jesus did miracles and his fame went abroad, he immediately withdrew. In other words, he didn't feed of fame or the honor of people. What fed him was having, a, having the, doing the will of his father. And this is a huge issue for people to face. So Jesus rejected their desire to exalt him and give him preeminence. He was primarily motivated by love for his father and desire for his father's approval. So that meant he was free from pride. I don't need you to like me. I don't need you to accept me. I don't need you to agree with me. There was no ego. I need you to recognize me. I need you to honor me. Uh, there was no demand on anyone for any of those things. And so that made him free to declare the truth. He could just say what he wanted to say. And if people left him, he didn't chase them. He didn't say, wait, 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 you misunderstood me. Try to get them back. He never did that. He just boldly declared the truth. If they didn't like it, well, that was their choice. And uh, when, when all the crowd left him, he just said to his disciples, are you going to leave too, guys? And they said, well, where are we going to go? You've got the words of life. Mm-hmm. And so th- these are choices that, these, these are s- s- things from the Bible that tell us the importance of us being free from the need for honor from people. So Jesus uh, rejected all self-promotion, all honoring of himself. Here's, here's a scripture here in John 8, verse 54. Jesus answered and said, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my father who honors me, and you say he's your God. So the Pharisees did everything to be seen by men. So whatever they did, they prayed. Well, they prayed to be seen by people, all long prayers. When they fasted, they dressed up and they looked, oh, man, you're fasting. Oh, man, you must be amazing. So the Pharisees constantly did things to get recognition from people. And Jesus said, none of those. It doesn't count. He taught that creating your own honor is not honor at all. So if you're into self-promotion, then God is not on that at all. He's not backing you up one little bit. If you promote yourself, you've got to keep yourself there. But if we let God promote us, then he backs us to keep us where he's promoted us to. Here's another scripture in, in Proverbs 20, verse 6. Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness, but who can find a faithful man? How about that? So every one of us had the experience of people, and all they want to do is promote themselves. They just talk about themselves. And so when you, st- you get with someone and you listen, if they're talking all about themselves, then they're into self-promoting, to honoring themselves. It's all about me. And so every man who speaks about himself promotes himself, Jesus said. So he's not into promoting himself in any way. And uh, so Jesus confronted the honor system. He showed that there's another honor system. So this is also what he taught. If we seek the honor from men, it will undermine your faith and your trust in God. So it's going to be a point of conflict If we seek to honor God, if we seek to honor Jesus, seek to live a life that honors him, it's going to bring us into conflict uh, uh, with uh, having the trust, uh, having received the honor that God has. Here's a a scripture, uh, John 5.44. John 5.44. How can you believe or how can you have faith or trust 
who receive honour from one another and do not seek the honour that comes only from God. How can you believe? How can you be in a place of faith? Without faith it's impossible to please God. How can you be in place of faith or believe when your goal is to receive honour from one another and you're not seeking the honour that comes from only from God? So notice there's an honour that comes from men, there's an honour that comes from God. If I seek the honour that comes from men, I want to be recognised, honoured, want to have privileges and titles and, and I, I have an expectation of that, then he says, uh, this is going to be in conflict with me trusting God for that honour. So it's a choice between one or the other. Now people honour us, it's okay to just receive that, but we should reflect it back to God. So people honour you for something you've done and appreciate you or whatever, uh, that's okay to receive it, but then reflect it, bring it back. Father, it's your, it's, this has come from you. This is what you've done. You always bring the honor back to him. And so there's an honor that comes from men, which is temporary. So in life, people have temporary, they look good for a while, but watch their whole life. They don't look good all the time. He said, there's also an honor that comes from God, which is eternal. So what would you pursue? The honor that comes from men, position, recognition, understanding, people like you, all that kind of thing, or you're going to seek the honor that comes from God. If we seek the honor that comes from men, the outcome is we'll never develop a life of faith that pleases God. So uh, here's, a, here's a good scripture in Galatians 1.10. Am I now trying to win the favor and approval of men or of God? There it is. What, what's motivating you? Wanting people to like you and approve of you or, or, and, and favor you? Or do you want that from God? He said, am I, if, am I seeking to please someone? For if I'm trying to be popular with men, I cannot be the servant of Christ. So he makes it very clear. If I seek to please men, I can't, I can't be the servant of Christ. So, so all of us are going to find ourselves as we follow Jesus, there will come points of conflict where people misunderstand you, people reject you, people speak against you. You should not try to explain or try to repair that we make a focus on honoring God and what we do. So this requires a life of faith, trusting that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. So Jesus taught an honor system that was different. He taught this is what the eternal honor system of the culture of kingdom of heaven is. Matthew 20, 25, Jesus called to them and said, you know the rulers of the Gentile lorded over them and those who are great exercise authority over them. So what he's saying is in the kingdoms of the world, People seek honor, they seek privilege, they seek roles, they seek titles, they seek influence, they seek to have recognition, seat at the highest place on the table, people acknowledge them whenever they come in the room. So that's what they do. And he says, but it shall not be so among you. So he makes it very clear that in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, that greatness is demonstrated by the heart of a servant, a, hum a humble heart, a serving heart. Humility and serving, sacrificial serving is the core of what God is like. And Jesus demonstrated it in, in many different ways. He said, whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your servant, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. And notice here that Jesus never had any expectation that people or life would serve him. And this is where many people get angry and frustrated. They have an unspoken expectation. Life should work well for me. People should be nice to me. Life should go good for me. And when you have that expectation, you'll have disappointment, you get frustrated, you get angry. He said, uh, it says here, he did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve. Or put it a different way, whenever he entered a relationship with someone or went into a situation, 
It was not to extract value out of it, but it was to give value into it. That's probably another way of saying the same thing. So Jesus indicate, in, identified clearly that the honor system of the world is rooted in pride and it's based on a desire for position and power and control and privilege and honor. So you can either seek it in this life or you can seek it in eternity. In eternity, it goes on for eternity. <laughs> you seek it in this life, it comes and it goes. It can be doing well one day and gone the next. But if our goal is to honor God and seek his honor, then what happens is we'll go through seasons of elevation and humiliation but at the end, God lifts us up. <clears throat> so, so that's the, the, the teaching then just around honor. <clears throat> that we see honor is a, is a kingdom value. It's a culture of the, the culture of the kingdom is one of honor, the honor of all men, not just a privileged few. So, so often, even in Christian circles, honor flows all one way, but it doesn't flow back again. So in the kingdom of God, he says, let's honor all men. And he gives a list of all the people to honor. We honor widows, we honor children, we honor kings, we honor those in authority, honor leaders, honor elders. In other words, honor is the value of people regardless of what they do. It's a gift to them. So we all have to choose then uh, between the honor of the, the, uh, of the world, uh, or the honor of God, or the honor of men. So it's quite challenging, isn't it, eh? So let's have a look then at the next reward. I want to look at the uh, reward which Jesus also spoke about, which is treasure and riches in heaven. Treasure and riches in heaven. It took a bit of a while to have a bit of a think about this one because uh, Jesus called us specifically to pursue treasures in heaven. And uh, we find that in Matthew 6.19, where he says uh, through to 21, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves do not break in and steal, but where your treasure is, there your heart is. So there Jesus makes it very clear. Laying up means to amass, to work, to accumulate, to store up. And the word treasure means wealth or substance or valuable goods that you can exchange. So he's saying very clearly, don't lay up treasures on earth. But lay it where, because they're corruptible, lay up treasures in heaven. So clearly, there are a couple of things, or many things we can see in here. Uh, you can see he's not saying one thing. He's not saying is that you should not seek to prosper in this life. He's not saying that. He's not see, saying that you should not uh, grow wealth and uh, because that puts you in a position of generosity and a place to help others. He's not saying that. It's the setting your heart on it. The key thing here is what you set your heart on. And he's saying that the heart needs to be set on eternal treasure. Why? Because earthly treasure, house, car, money, all of the things that we can accumulate can, can be lost in a moment. He said they're corruptible, meaning they're not eternal, they're not lasting. Whereas he says treasures in heaven, they can't be stolen and they can't be corrupted. So obviously there's a message there very clearly or a, a, a mandate that, that we should set our heart on eternal things. Um, in the book of Proverbs, I can't remember where, but it says, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. In other words, if you prosper, don't get caught up and fall in love with the prosperity. Keep your heart set on eternal things. Here's another scripture in Luke uh, 11, uh, 16, 11. If you've not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? So now Jesus is contrasting that money, he's talking about money and he's saying that money is, uh, he's talking about, calls it unrighteous mammon or a spirit. And uh, just like God is a spirit, mammon has got a spirit or a power behind it. And he, he's, saying very, he's saying very clearly, 
uh, that if we're not faithful in the management of the money we have, how will God entrust to us true riches? That means money is a rich, it's riches on earth, but there must be another kind of riches called true riches. So there are true riches and there's money. Now, most people, all they can think about is money because money is a source of power and influence and then the love of it corrupts. But he's saying there is true riches. So what does he mean by that? Here's another one in Matthew 19, 21. He told the young man, he said, if you want to be perfect, sell what you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasures in heaven. There it is again. Treasures in heaven. Lay up treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be. Uh, True riches. All of these tell us then there's earthly treasure and then there's heavenly treasure. So earthly treasure, uh, people seek it all their life and never find it. Or people become rich, they find it, and then they worry about losing their riches all the time. Uh, Matthew 6.19 tells us that. Or people trust their riches rather than God. They start to trust, they become secure in their money rather than secure in God. 1 Timothy 6.17. And when people become very wealthy, they tend to look down on others. Also, 1 Timothy 6, verse 17, where he tells rich men, don't, uh, if riches increase, where he tells people who've become wealthy, he said, uh, he said not to set your heart on the riches and uh, to, to trust God and to do good on others, not look down on them. So the problem is if we make the pursuit of wealth our main goal, it then destroys our focus on eternal things. So Paul also directed us to set our attention on seeking treasure in heaven in Colossians 3.1. He said, if you're raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your affection on those things, things which are above, not on things of the earth. So notice there again, Paul is saying, don't let your affection be attached to things which are temporary. Let your affection be on the things which are eternal. Uh, Thirdly, Jesus described treasure in heaven as the true riches. And I want to look at them what it is. So in Luke 16, he said, uh, and we saw the verse there in verse 11, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous money, who will commit to your trust true riches? If you can't be faithful in another man's, who will give you what's your own? So there's obviously true riches. The word true means authentic, genuine, the opposite of imaginary or counterfeit. So there are true riches. So notice there are true riches, eternal in heaven, which can be laid up and can be reserved. And so what qualifies as us? How do we lay up treasures in heaven and what are the treasures in heaven? So in that particular parable there, Jesus commended the steward because he thought ahead, acted wisely, and he invested in his future. And he's saying that Christians need to do the same thing. We need to think ahead for eternity. So he uses the comparison of a steward who was unfaithful and now he's going to lose his job and lose his provision. And he plans ahead so that people will look after him. And Jesus said, man, that's a smart guy. There's not many guys in the kingdom that in this life think about the eternal life and then plan intentionally how to lay up treasure in heaven. So what are the true riches? What are the true riches? So the first thing is, because you think, well, what are the true riches? So heaven is full of gold and precious stones. They're everywhere. So they can't be rich. They can't be the true riches. Think about that. In Revelation 21, 18, uh, it says, uh, talking about the city of God, it says the contraction of its wall was of jasper and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. How about that? 20, verse 21, the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each gate was one pearl and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So you notice there, the streets are gold. So if there's gold, there's so much gold you could put on the street, how much value is that? I mean, it's, 
we look out and see bitumen on the road and say, but bitumen's everywhere, it doesn't cost much because there's so much of it and the issues are for a common thing. He's saying in heaven, gold is like that. So you notice there, if you read through the book of Revelation, you find there are gold and precious stones everywhere in the city. So therefore, true riches cannot refer to things like gold and silver and that kind of thing. The true riches in heaven or the treasure in heaven that Jesus refers to is eternal intimacy, a deep, close, very personal relationship with Jesus and the Father, eternal authority, uh, uh, working with him and being invested great authority to bring transformation in the kingdom and eternal glory, honor. So wealth is something that's very, very valuable. It's a, a commodity that enables you to accomplish many things. And the true, true riches of heaven are intimacy, authority, and honor or glory. Those are the things we should set our heart on. Those are the things we should seek. And the Bible talks about them. So when the Bible talks about it, it's interesting in, in the book of Revelation, Revelations chapter 2, verse 17, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I'll give hidden manna to eat, and I'll give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So that word white stone means a brilliant light, dazzling, dazzling white like a diamond. So what is he talking about there? Well, the white stone was a stone that was received by like a gold medal at the Olympics. So if someone had run a race, uh, achieved something great, they were given a white stone and it was a symbol of honor and gave them admission. So you notice he's using the idea of the white stone in heaven giving you honor and admission. So he's basically again talking about deeper relationship and deeper intimacy and deeper access to the things of God. Hidden manner, again, being able to enter the very presence of God and have an intimate relationship with him. So the treasures in heaven refer to privileged access to Jesus. Let me say that again. The treasures in heaven all are related or refer to privileged access to Jesus and to the Father. It's all to do with a relationship, a, a union with him, a connection with him, and all that flows out. Let me show you a couple of scriptures on that. Um, so access, treasure in heaven then refers to privileged access to Jesus. What does that mean? Access to the unreachable, unsearchable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3.8 To me who am less than the least of all the saints this grace was given, I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That means, unsearchable means uh, past finding out. They're beyond comprehension. So you say, what he's saying is then Intimacy with Christ and knowledge of Him is far beyond our human brain's ability to comprehend by logic. It's only known by revelation. And searchable means there's so much you can't search it all out. You'll never get to the end of it. You'll never exhaust the fullness of it. So you look into the book of, uh, say, the book of uh, Isaiah, chapter 6, and you find Isaiah had an encounter with heaven, and it says there, he saw the glory of God. He saw Jesus lifted, uh, sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And, around, and then he said he saw seraphim and they had six wings. So he's getting a view of the glory of God. And what he sees is the seraphim have got six wings. With two they cover their face or their eyes because the brilliance of God's glory is beyond their ability to comprehend. With two they cover their feet, meaning the holiness of God is overwhelming to them. Were two they did fly, they stayed in their position or their ranking. So notice then it tells us then we get access to the unsearchable riches of who Jesus is. 
we get access to the riches of his glory. Here's another one in Romans 9 verse 23, that he might make known the riches of his glory or his majesty on the vessels of mercy he prepared beforehand for glory. It means access to the riches of his mercy and love. Here it is again. And notice, the, notice what it says are riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the riches of his glory, the riches of his mercy and love. Here it is. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love, he loved us. The riches of his grace, he has raised us up and made us seated together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. In the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Notice there, the riches then are around spiritual things which have magnificent value. Accesses, access to the riches of his wisdom and knowledge. Here's another one, Colossians 2 verse 2 and 3. Uh, that our hearts may be encouraged and knit together in love uh, and attaining to all the riches of full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, Father, and the, of the Father and of Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. So you notice then, for example, uh, it, when Solomon had been taught by his father, who's a man who walked with God, and he talked and his father taught him. Because in the book of Proverbs, chapter 2, he says, Now my son, so Solomon speaking to his son, he says, Now listen to the teaching of your father, for my father taught me. And then he began to talk about the value of wisdom. And he says, Wisdom is the principal thing, and in all your wisdom get understanding. And so when God spoke to Solomon and said, Solomon, what is it you want? I'll give you anything you want. He said, Give me an understanding heart to discern. I want wisdom. And God was pleased with that because he's looking for eternal riches. And then God gives him everything else. He said, because you didn't ask for power of your enemies or riches or any of these other things, I'll give you all of that. So you notice then that when you have wisdom and understanding, everything else comes to you. So we so often put our value or what we consider riches as gold and silver and a bank account and a boat and a house and all those things. Those are temporary and they pass away. They need maintenance, they, they disappear. He said there's other riches, there's other things which are eternal riches. And so wisdom and knowledge uh, are eternal riches. In Colossians 2, 3, it talks about Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you want wisdom? You want a deeper relationship with Jesus? He's the source of wisdom, the source of knowledge. So wisdom, by understanding we get to see how things are. We gain insight to the reality of what things are. Wisdom, we know exactly what to do. So there's many scriptures there in Proverbs about wisdom. Proverbs 3.19, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth and by understanding established the heavens. <clears throat> Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Proverbs 3.13, Her proceeds are better than profits of silver and her gain better than fine gold. She's more precious than rubies. Of all the things you may desire, cannot compare with her. So notice there that book of Proverbs is full of statements about that wisdom and, and understanding are the true riches. If you've got those, everything else you need will come out of that. So uh, again, uh, we have access to the riches of revelation by, from Jesus. In Psalm 190 verse 72, the law of your mouth... In other words, revelation is better to me than thousands of coins of gold and silver. And notice again, David's writing and he's saying, I got lots of gold, I got lots of silver, but what's more important is revelation, hearing from God personally, because all I have has come out of that. So 
I encourage you to go through the verses and have a look around then the true riches and start to look at your own heart. Is your heart set on intimacy with the Lord and knowing Jesus Christ in whom are all the riches? Is your heart set on wisdom and on understanding? Is your heart set on the pursuit of those things? Or is your heart set on the pursuit of other things? Because if you get wisdom and understanding, then many other things come to you or are attracted to you in life. And so, of course, the Bible tells us a number of ways we can lay up treasures in heaven. And I won't go into those. I'll just throw them out to you. You can look at the scriptures on it. But, but uh, prayer, Jesus taught in Matthew 6, that prayer, then God will reward us. See? Uh, fasting, God will reward us. Giving, God will reward us. Treasure in heaven. See? Kindness to the poor, God will reward us. Loving people with no agenda, God will reward us. You start to look at it. Faithfulness, Luke 16, God will reward us. Enduring persecution, God will reward us. The sacrifice, laying down your life to service, God will reward us. The worship lifestyle, God will reward us. So you can find the scriptures. I'll leave it to you to look those out. But all of these things uh, give us access to the riches of heaven. Every time you pray, you can access the presence of God and lay up treasures in heaven. You lay up an access to God's resources coming and manifesting in the earth. Okay, then we'll do the last one now. The last one I want to look at tonight. Uh, and this is the area, um, number eight, we'll call this vindication. 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 What does that mean? So Jesus will vindicate us for following and obeying him. So what does vindicate mean? It means to clear of accusation, of blame, suspicion, doubt. It means to defend you, to insist you're recognized, or to validate you. So it means to clear you of accusation or blame or suspicion, take away all doubt, and it's got supporting proof. It means to defend you, insist that you're recognized. It means to demonstrate or prove or your value, to justify you. So here's the thing. It says in Revelations 3 verse 9, I will make those who persecuted you come and worship before your feet and know I have loved you. So frequently... Of course, during life, Christians who are following the Lord sincerely and deeply suffer misunderstanding. We get falsely accused. We can be rejected. We can be ridiculed for our lifestyle. Ridiculed because we don't do what everyone else does. Ridiculed because of our choices and our values. And part of the suffering that we have is you, you can't vindicate yourself. You can't prove that you're right or prove to people easily uh, all you can do is let the fruit be shown over time, but in the end, God will vindicate us. So Christ will openly vindicate the godly choices you make, your lifestyle, your choices. He will honor you for what you have chosen to do in following him. And uh, there's scriptures in, uh, in 1 Peter 4, verse 3 through to 5. The time is past enough for doing what the unsaved Gentiles do, living in the course of sensuality, lusts, and drunkenness. Uh, in verse 4, in connection with this, the unbelievers are resentful, surprised you do not think like them, value their values, or run with them in the same excesses of dissipation, immoral freedom. They criticize, abuse, and ridicule, make fun of you. But they will have to give an account of him who's ready to judge and pass sentence on the living and the dead. So he's saying, as a believer, you suffer ridicule, misunderstanding, abuse, all kinds of accusations, and mistreatment and hardship. However, those who do that will give account to the Lord and he will vindicate you. 
Notice what he said, uh, I will make them know I have loved you. So one of the things that God plans to do is he wants to make everyone know how deeply he loves you because of the walk you've had. Jesus said, I will make them know. In other words, he himself will vindicate you before those who gave you such a hard time. Those who honor me, I will honor them. So God has his own way of doing that. As we've honored Jesus in our lifestyle and gone through suffering, then he will, in, in, in this coming again, will honor us before all people. So everyone, the Bible makes it very, very clear that uh, in John 17, 23, in them, uh, he said that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know you sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So God, in his own way, we don't know how he will do it, will make it clear to everyone the high value he places on those who follow him and who serve him, who give honor to him. He says, I will make them come and worship at your feet. And uh, Jesus will manifest his love and vindicate us before those who have persecuted, opposed us, and falsely criticized us. Think about it. If you love someone deeply, you desire to vindicate them if they're being badly treated. So, when, 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 so for example, I'll give you an example. Uh, when Paul is, Saul is persecuting the church, he has an encounter with Jesus, and Jesus said, Saul, Saul, how come you're persecuting me? He said, what? Jesus, in other words, identifies so strongly with his people that when he confronted Saul, he said, you're persecuting me. When you do it to the least of my brethren, you're doing it to me. So when people persecute you, mistreat you, uh, misunderstand you, whatever, they're doing that to the Christ in you. And Christ himself will come and stand on your behalf. So in this age... (laughs) It doesn't always look like God has vindicated us. But in the coming age, he will do exactly that. He will vindicate us. In Isaiah um, 54, sorry, 45, 14, he says, uh, he talks in, he said, they shall come over to you and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come, they shall bow down to you. They will say, surely God is in you. There is no other. They will bow the knee to Jesus in in the presence of the people they persecuted. So it's like, uh, in Isaiah 60 verse 14, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bowing to you. Those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet and call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One. Whereas you've been forsaken and hated, so no man went through you, I will make you an eternal excellence, a joy of many generations. So God is promising to bring honor to his people Israel and also honor to his people who faithfully served him. So the last one we just finished with then is that at the end time, no matter how people have thought and responded to Jesus, the Bible is very clear. Every person will bow their knee to Jesus. So Philippians 2 verse 10 and 11, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and earth. Every tongue confess that he is Lord. In other words, to bow the knee means to humble yourself and admit to his kingly honor and glory. So no matter how unbelievers rage, no matter how they abuse and blaspheme and say all kinds of things and attack Christians, attack the church, do all those kind of things, at the end, all shall bow before Jesus because of his authority and his majesty will be irresistible. In Psalm 102, 15, it said, All the nations shall fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. How about that? When the Lord shall build up Zion or his people, he will appear in his glory. I encourage you to read through the whole passage. And uh, Psalm 102, verse 22, When the peoples are gathered together and the kingdoms come to serve the Lord. So Jesus will be vindicated before all men and those who have identified with him and they're serving him will also be vindicated. So in the story today, 
we've seen a high, a lot, covered a lot of ground, but we've seen how uh, Jesus uh, has promised uh, praise and honor. In other words, that where we're dishonored, where people have rejected us and spoken against us, God Himself will bestow honor on us that will be visible, tangible, recognized by everyone. And there's a pathway to that. The pathway to that honor is the pathway of serving and humility. We saw in the study how God offers treasures and riches in heaven. They are the true treasures, the true riches. And these are riches that come out of the knowledge and intimacy with Jesus Christ. And so these are the treasures of eternal intimacy and eternal honor that God alone can give and the eternal authority that God can give. And we saw finally that God will vindicate us in every place where our choices have been rejected or mocked or ridiculed, our lifestyles been ridiculed, God will actually honor us and point out before people that these were godly decisions and they brought honor to Him. What an amazing, amazing point. What rewards God has for those who love Him. So a few challenges to think about. Firstly, what did God really touch you with today? And uh, what do you need to do to respond to that? And then there's a couple of areas perhaps related to each of those rewards is there any area you need to let go seeking honor of people and fearing rejection? Is some area you need to face that you've tried to get approval of men and now you need to actually repent of that and bring that to the cross and say, God, I just want to honor you. I want you to be honored in all I do. Uh, is there some area where you need to change your focus and set it on eternal riches? Uh, is there some area related to the management of riches and resources you need to then say, I've got to bring this into kingdom alignment now? And finally, is there areas where you tend to want to vindicate or prove you're right, where you just need to let it go and let God do that? God bless you. It's been a great study, and uh, we'll share a bit more on this area of eternal rewards. God bless.